Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And here is an orientation to the topic for today's episode. Today's episode is going to be a deviation from our traditional episode approach. Instead of focusing on a specific scientific investigation or multiple investigations pertaining to a singular topic, we're going to be reviewing a white paper from a recently performed workshop between experts in translational informatics and sleep research. This workshop was purposed to discuss opportunities and challenges in defining strategies for data harmonization with an ultimate goal of fueling discussion and fostering innovative approaches for data integration and development of informatics infrastructure supporting multi-site collaboration among sleep researchers. Modern advancements in statistical techniques such as machine learning methodologies, have provided the ability to better characterize heterogeneous patient phenotypes across a multitude of sleep and circadian conditions. However, these approaches are dependent on big data, which can be viewed as tens of thousands to millions of observations for the computer algorithms to leverage in their computations. Thus, there is an urgent need for efficient access to a higher volume of high-quality data. Enhance accessibility to large quality data sets for research through leverage of electronic health records and developed data repositories has assisted these modern efforts. Yet, substantial barriers still exist, including reliance on storing data in silos with insufficient infrastructure for data sharing within and across institutions, absence of clarity on methods and data collections conditions, lack of standardized terminologies and structured vocabularies, the imbalance between effort and expenses necessary for data curation and harmonization and lack of attribution or resources for performing these actions. In this episode, Dr. Diego Mazzacci, who acted as corresponding author for this workshop report, discusses the specific findings from the recent Perspectives article in the journal Sleep entitled Sleep and Circadian Informatics Data Harmonization a workshop from the Sleep Research Society and Sleep Research Network, which summarizes key concepts discussed at a one-day sleep and circadian data harmonization workshop organized by the Sleep Research Society and the Sleep Research Network Task Force, as well as identifies actionable next steps for the sleep and circadian community. Before the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Diego Mazzacci. Dr. Diego Mazzacci is an assistant professor in the Division of Medical Informatics, Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Dr. Mazzacci received his PhD in psychobiology at the Federal University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and a certificate in biomedical informatics from the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine. Dr. Mazzacci has been recently appointed the vice chair of the Sleep Research Network, a task force from the SRS and co-leads the Sleep Domain Team at the National COVID Cohort Collaborative, N3C. 
Dr. Mazzacci's current research interests focus on the application of innovative methods to the analysis of high-dimensional sleep data to understand how they can be translated into clinical knowledge and into applications that advance healthcare. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Diego Mazzacci. Hope you enjoy. And now for our guest interview with Dr. Diego Mazzacci. Diego, great to see you today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss this piece of literature. Um, how are you doing today? I am pretty good, Jesse. Thank you very much for the invite to participate. I'm very glad to be here. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Me as well. And truthfully, Diego, I got to thank you. You were the first guest that actually operated out of the same time zone as me. So scheduling was a little bit easier. So thank you for that. And as I primed the listeners earlier today, or earlier in this episode, this episode's a little bit different than our past episodes. We're expanding the scope of what this podcast covers. In past episodes, we focused on specific research investigations, talked about the rationale, the methodology, the findings, the implications. Today's a little bit different. We're not actually talking about a specific investigation per se. We're talking about a workshop report and the one that was recently published in Sleep entitled Sleep and Circadian Informatics, Data Harmonization, a workshop report from the Sleep Research Society and Sleep Research Network. We'll dive into the nitty gritty of the details there and let our expert Diego carry our ship going forward or steer it. But for now, Diego, let's start with this question. Would you please tell us a little bit about your journey to biomedical informatics in the context of sleep and circadian research? Yes, absolutely. So that's a very interesting life story, I would say. When I was started in research, I actually started as a geneticist, understanding genetic variation of age-related disorders. So I was very fascinated by it, but I was also very fascinated by the analysis and analytics related to it. So in, in the institution that I was in at, at Federal University of Sao Paulo, where I was learning all about, you know, statistical genetics and, you know, how to apply genetics to study aging, I got involved with a group, a research group that had some experts in statistical genetics in my institution, and they also happened to be in a sleep laboratory. Right. So I was uh, initially involved in trying to merge a little bit of the genetics of sleep. And then if you think about like some of my early work was actually in, in, in this field. But part of my involvement there was related to the data analysis, like the bioinformatics. Right. So I was fascinated by computers. I was fascinated of how we can use computers to be more efficient researchers or to potentially apply methods to ask like more complicated questions and try to get, you know, less complicated answers. And with that, I always try to bring a little bit of uh, bioinformatics to my work, regardless of, of the field that I've been working on. More recently, after I, I moved to the United States, I was fascinated by how uh, the electronic health record systems are set up and the amount of work that informatics teams have put on to build those resources and how we can actually now today leverage a lot of that was built to, to do epidemiological research. So this team and part of that together with like my training in sleep medicine as part of my PhD back in Brazil, that what really taught me about integrating aspects of like more formalized biomedical informatics to sleep medicine. And that's how I, I became more involved in this area recently. 
very groovy. Uh, and I love that you had a passion for kind of a specific niche of genetics and that unfolded into a whole different kind of discipline, if you will. And one that I know just from our pre-show discussion, you are fulfilled by, very passionate about. So I imagine this conversation today, that will show through for sure. But when you're not advancing the frontier of biomedical informatics in sleep and circadian research or just sleep and circadian research broadly, what do you do in your spare time as a human being, Diego? Well, I really love to enjoy outdoors. I like to be out. I like to go to the beach, even though we don't really have beaches in Kansas. <laughs> so that's one, one of the things that it's harder for me, but I always have the opportunity to go back home and, and enjoy there. We do have lakes and we do often go to lakes in the area, kayaking, hiking. So that's all great. I also love music and I actually used to teach guitar for several years back in Brazil. And recently over the last year, I actually was able to find a student that was interested in learning guitar here. So it was, was quite an experience trying to bring a lot of like, you know, my, my teaching experience that I had back in Brazil to like a student uh, from, from the United States. So I really enjoyed that. I, I love playing music with my family and my friends. So that's, that's, you know, another passion that I have on the side outstanding and very harmonious as our last guest for the SRS podcast, Dr. Lisa Meltzer, also described herself as a musician. So now we're, we're really on the uh, trajectory to formulating the first Sleep Research Society band. Stay tuned, everybody. But I love all that. And obviously being outdoors is so enriching and uh, really, really is essential to health and well-being and sleep health and circadian health. So practicing what we preach here on the SRS. Uh, but if you weren't doing what you're doing as a sleep and circadian researcher, then what career would you have? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, based on what I said, I probably would be very happy, you know, playing as a guitarist in a traveling band <laughs> all over. That probably wouldn't happen. I probably wouldn't, you know, be as happy as I probably am today. But more realistically, I probably would be happy being some sort of a you know, bioinformatics and biostatistics consultant and helping people uh, launch their research studies. I, I actually did some of this when I was back in Brazil. I had like a small consulting company and which actually worked pretty, pretty well for, for some time. And you can see that people were really kind of grateful about having at least some, some basic uh, understanding of how they can turn their own research work into, into something like publishable with like interesting results. So I feel like that I, I had this opportunity. That's probably something that I would be doing if I'm not working directly with sleep. And I got to say, Diego, if you ever do deviate careers and end up traveling the world, doing the musical gig, ping me. There was a, back in my, my previous life, I went through a period of doing open mics as a front man in a band back in the college days when I thought I was the reincarnation of Jim Morrison. Things have changed throughout <laughs> adulthood, but I'm always ready to strap on those tight leather pants and a conch belt when needed. So feel free to ping me. <laughs> but for now, let's transition back to the science world and we'll play a little keyword association to rev our engines here. And for the listeners out there, if this is your first time, nothing really remarkable here. We're playing word association. So I'll give Diego a word and he'll say the first thing that comes to mind. We have just labeled it keyword association to better align with the scientific theme here. So Diego, are you ready for the keyword association? Yes, let's do it. All right. First word, informatics. Technology how things are built together digitally. Big data. 
what everybody wants to, to get. It's how we learn about uh, collecting information about the world and you know all the information that you have about the world digitalized, big data. Big data and small p-values, huh? Uh, <laughs> how about this one, multi-site collaboration? I think it's essential, particularly in the field that are, we are working in. We can get anywhere without it. Absolutely. The road for optimal progression, I would say. Next words, or I guess words here, uh, data sharing. I would say that's essential as well. Um, we, we, we have challenges with this. We have been having challenges with this through all the history of science, and we need to work to be better about it. Open science. Also essential. I guess I'm just going to keep saying the word essential for my associations here. Uh, yes, I, I believe that uh, scientific knowledge can be helpful in so many ways. So I don't have any restrictions about fully uh, working with open science. Standardization. So standardization uh, is how it's almost like how we communicate agree in agreed upon terms. If we can talk the same language, we can understand each other. We can be more efficient in things. And last word here, Diego, harmonization. Well, in the context of music or in the context of technology, <laughs> I do think that harmonization uh, is almost like a, a consequence of standardization. So if we, if we have things, if we agree upon standards, it makes it easier to harmonize and, and effectively do, do, do things together. Very true. But can we agree upon standards? Stay tuned for the upcoming deeper dive into the weeds here. Um, but thank you for setting the stage here, Diego. I think we've prepared for flight into the actual article of focus. And again, this is a bit atypical for the SRS podcast as we're not actually focusing on a specific research investigation, but a workshop report. So I really think it's important, Diego, to kind of provide a 10,000 foot view here before diving deeper into the weeds. For the listeners out there who may or may not be familiar what is a workshop report? Yeah, so a workshop report is a summary discussion of a workshop that often occurs as part of a meeting, not necessarily exclusively as part of like a meeting, but could be just like a group of people um, coming together via Zoom to discuss a specific topic. The workshop report is almost like a um, call to, to action or or. Some, some sort of document that explains the discussion to the general audience. So I believe that it's important to have a workshop document because the, our discussions are not stayed within the room that we actually did the discussions. So that, that's a way of pr pretty much communicating topics that were part of the discussion to the general audience of that topic. Beautiful. And at its core, what is this, what's the role, what's the purpose What's the utility of a workshop for future scientific inquiries and pursuits? So when we have workshops, uh, we have this opportunity of having brilliant people thinking about a specific problem together, right? We often see this in scientific presentations, in scientific meetings in general, but um, it, it, like the standard way of uh, participating in scientific meetings with presentations, sometimes it's like too fast, right? You have a seven minute presentation plus a two minute discussion, and then you barely get to talk to the person that's, you know, 
going to be presenting after you. So, so that sometimes can feel a little rushed. And then when you have a workshop uh, as part of a conference, you 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 are planning time to discuss to to have a, a, a deeper dive into into this team. So it really helps to have you know brilliant minds sitting in the same room discussing things how we've done in the past, what are the problems, how we can move it into the future and do it better. And th that's that's one of the great uh, opportunities that we see from workshops being developed to run. Outstanding, and and I will say as um, someone who's familiar but not necessarily well seasoned in the terminology used or some of the challenges and, and difficulties and barriers ahead. I thought this report was easily digestible, was a very, very succinct, but comprehensive um, coverage. So, so thank you for your efforts there. Now, how does a panel get selected to be a part of a workshop? Yeah, so it really depends on the team and the topic. And for this specific uh, workshop, I, I just full disclosure, I was actually not part of the, you know, involved to, to, to the creation and selection of the workshop. I, I joined the workshop when it actually happened, and I can talk a little bit more about this later on. But basically, uh, the goal of this particular workshop, which was uh, on, on harmonization of sleep data, we had to invite scientists and leaders in the field that are working in the specific domains that we were interested in, in promoting harmonization. So here, for example, in this workshop, we had experts in questionnaires, experts in polysonography data, actigraphy, and experts in informatics infrastructure to actually build those things together. So again, having these people in the room discussing about those teams and how we can help each other, uh, it, it worked great. So uh, it really depends on the team. And, and for this particular team, we have experts that um, are familiar with processes related to harmonization of sleep data. Uh, so then we can think together how to, to improve it in the future. Well said. And I noticed that your name was listed first on this workshop report, which also coincided with you being the corresponding author, which in turn is leading to you being the guest for the show. How are you blessed with the opportunity, if you want to put it, I'll put blessed in quotations, uh, to serve that role? Yeah, now that, that's a, an interesting story. And I can give more details of like what happened during the workshop because of this, right? So I when I, I went to the, it was the World Sleep uh, Conference uh, in 2019 in Vancouver, uh, you know, beautiful city. I really enjoyed my time there. And I saw this workshop it listed as part of the different sessions that we had in the conference. And I realized that, well, you know, this is actually right up my alley. Like I'm just now, you know, learning more about biomedical informatics and trying to bring more formalized biomedical informatics through all my research. At the time, I was doing a certificate program in biomedical informatics at the end. So, you know, a lot of the concepts about data harmonization, standardization, they were just kind of like right there, right? So I joined that. I was fascinated. My eyes were shining about, you know, wow, this is like really what I want to do. Like, it seems that I'm so glad to hear those discussions that our field in sleep medicine, they're really having those discussions. So I, I almost like started, you know, so, somehow like dominating part of the discussion. I was just asking questions. I was giving my perspectives of how things should be done. And so I think that somehow caught the attention of, you know, thankfully in a positive way about the, the, the organizers and the people that were like leading the workshop. 
And after the workshop uh, has completed, I decided to compile a lot of the information that I learned. So I, I had like lots of notes. I had, you know, contacts from people that I, that I ended up meeting there. And I talked with the organizers and then I said, I have enough materials here that we could probably work uh, towards like a, a report, some sort of like white paper. And then, uh, you know, Dr. Janet Mullington and Dr. Eilish Boudreau, they deeply encouraged me to, yes, like, let's write a workshop report. I think our field need, needs these and we are very lucky to have you kind of like helping lead some of this. And they, they were, you know, uh, very helpful in, in, in agreeing for me to leading the study, being the corresponding author. And that really, really helped me through all me finding my current niche of work that I have today. So I am extremely grateful for the opportunity that the Sleep Research Network uh, offered me as part of, which is a task force from the SRS. Uh, and, and I think like without my involvement in this workshop, I probably wouldn't be here right I'm here today. So I, I believe that, uh, you know, I, that, that's kind of like how I ended up being involved in the first place. I guess I was proactive in a way that was positive for everyone. So it's somehow opportunistic, but I believe that that ended up working well for everybody. I feel the gratitude coming through the computer and I extend it back to you because we are lucky to have you. And again, it was a remarkably elegant report. So remarkable job producing it, you know, participating in it, pushing it forward and then disseminating in it. Cause I, I do think it is very quality useful. And uh, as we'll talk about, maybe doesn't have full closure on what the next steps are, but it really, or I guess doesn't have the full answers, but it really guides us into the directions we really need to be ironing out. So thank you for that. And you mentioned this sleep research network. I imagine a lot of our listeners are very familiar with what the Sleep Research Society is, but what is the Sleep Research Network? Yeah, so the Sleep Research Network uh, is currently a task force from the SRS. So it's, it's never been that way. Actually, in, at, by the time of that uh, workshop, that's when the SRN, which I'm using here to denote Sleep Research Network, became an official task force from the SRS. So I, I actually have here the, you know, one of the goals of the task force, of the, the SRN task force. Uh, and then I'm just going to read this so then, you know, people are a little aware, right? So the SRN task force aims to promote sustainable multi-institutional collaborations in sleep and circadian science by developing a network of sleep research sites. Right. So the goal is to enable all aspects of clinical research within the domain of clinical and circadian sciences, uh, sleep and circadian sciences, uh, to facilitate the conduct of clinical research. Now, that could be all, all the way to the level of how we can conduct a nice clinical trial, how we can come up with nice protocols that are uh, can be used to, you know, do whatever sleep assessment that you're interested in doing all the way, which is more of the area of my interest, how we can really engage uh, as part of a multi-site uh, collaboration, how we can engage the different resources that our institutions have to offer that sometimes are already there. It's just that we never really contact, have the right context within our institutions to know that, how we can use those resources to work together in, in multi-site. So there are different uh, uh, networks, clinical research networks that are out there in several domains uh, of, of medicine and biology. So we are, the Sleep Research Network is our attempt to now bring in uh, this same concept within the sleep and circadian domains. 
beautiful. And more or less what I'm hearing is trying to make life easier in some ways for researchers to do quality clinical research. And for that, I thank you. Now, as far as this specific workshop, we've we've touched upon some of the themes, but neatly for the listeners, what was the actual purpose of this workshop? Yeah, so the workshop was about uh, informatics harmonization of sleep and circadian data, right? So we were, m- most of the discussions center around understanding the types of data that we have, that we generate as sleep and circadian scientists, both as in the research context, but also in the clinical context. And what are the challenges that exist now to, uh, in, in fact, put this data together so then we can start asking cross-disciplinary questions, right? So a lot of the studies that we've been used to learn about risk factors for sleep disorders, sleep disorders as risk factors of other outcomes, they came sometimes a secondary analysis of, of other cohorts that have been designed to study cardiovascular disease. And then like, you know, we included some sleep assessments and that, that really helped, you know, improve the, the, the science in the field. But uh, that sometimes can be an afterthought. So what, what can you do next? What can you do in order to allow the design and the development of sleep data aggregation, if, we're, if I were to say, to start answering those questions uh, more broadly? So that, that was part of the discussion. Uh, and then we did have different experts within uh, different domains of sleep data to talk about their opinions of where in that specific domain we wanted to move forward. But in general, uh, it, it, one, of, one of the kind of like home take home messages that I got from that is that, you know, yeah, the problem is much, you know, deeper than, than we originally thought, right? So there's way more variability in heterogeneity in the way that people do things. So we need to start kind of like having those conversations, define what's common and define what how we can move forward the things that we agree upon uh, and start implementing it. Beautiful. And what occurred during the workshop? And broadly speaking, what does the report detail? I I imagine that everyone was uh, fighting back and forth, yelling, screaming, throwing questionnaires at each other. Is that that what happened? Uh, I may have saw like an actigraph flying around, but maybe it's just that, you know, luckily it wasn't that heavy. But uh, no, actually, no, it was actually no, no, no discussion in terms of like how people were agreeing. In, in things, right? I mean, that, that wasn't necessarily really a, uh, you know, a topic of the workshop, but one thing that is interesting to bring right now in, in this point of the discussion is that there are maybe two levels of harmonization or standardization, like both, actually that applies to both of those concepts. One is more technical. It's like, you know, how, how do we measure things the same way? Are we using the same like data standards? Are we talking about the same, uh, collection instruments or things like this. So it's more technical how we are representing that data that you're collecting in a database, how we are calling the variable names for those particular variables, right? So that's one aspect of standardization and harmonization. The other aspect is a little more conceptual, and that's where maybe we are talking about that maybe there could be some, you know, actigraphs flying around, right? So, uh, and, you know, we really didn't discuss much, even though there is like clear overlap between the technical and the conceptual harmonization. So, uh, so you know, the, the discussion was more towards, look, here are the standards of my domain. Uh, here's what I think we should agree upon. 
and that's uh, possibly how we can move forward, right? So the discussion was that, so we had like pretty much three parts of the workshop. The first part was an excellent presentation uh, from Dr. Melissa Hendo. So Dr. Melissa Hendo, she is the chief research, currently the chief research informatics officer at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Uh, she's a professor there as well, but at the time she was at the um, Oregon Health Sciences University. And she's actually one of the, the, the lead directors working with, uh, you know, a huge clinical research data repository interested in, in, in learning about COVID-19, which is called the N3C, the National COVID Cohort Collaborative. So that, you know, ha having Dr. Handel there, uh, you know, talk about clinical research informatics, which is this specific area within biomedical informatics that studies how we can make secondary use of clinical data for research. Uh, we started with that presentation and then that set the ground uh, to see what are the current advances in other areas like beyond sleep medicine and how we sleep researchers, sleep and circuit researchers can learn from what you know other areas have learned in the past and applied it to our field moving forward. So that was the first part. The second part was a specific discussion of those different teams uh, that I talked about. So questionnaires, we have uh, Dr. Dan Baisi uh, from Pittsburgh uh, talking about questionnaires. Uh, we also have Dr. Thiel Roenberg from Germany talking about actigraphy. So we have like key names, right? Dr. Thomas Penzo from Germany as well, talking about standards in polysomnography. And we have Dr. Sean Purcell from uh, Boston talking about informatics infrastructure. So how we can build those things together. And Dr. Sean Purcell, he's also co-director of the National Sleep Research Resource, which is you know an excellent resource that it, uh, I assume most of the listeners are aware of in our field. And it kind of like shows like, you know, if things work well, this is what we can get, right? So even though the NSRR is just a small portion of all the research products that are being generated in our field, it kind of gives you a hint of how impressive having all of this cataloged can be and can help advance science in the field. So, and then the final part of the workshop was a breakout session where uh, different people joined different tables. It was nice. We did this in person. So it wasn't like Zoom breakout sessions. It was actually real tables, break, break, breakout sessions. And then we discussed how we can move the field uh, forward within each domain. And then we had a brief summary that then has resulted in the different topics that we discussed uh, in the workshop report that was published. Which you elegantly summarized, I will say. Um, it was very easy to follow, and I encourage everyone out there listening to go get a copy of this. Um, it's it's worthwhile to have, for sure. And I appreciate that, Diego, and uh, thank you so much for kind of setting the stage for a deeper discussion. Um, if you're ready, I'm ready to dive deeper in the weeds. What do you say? Absolutely. Let's go. All right. So clearly, there's a lot of tangible benefit here. You know, we have these these new, advanced, really powerful statistical techniques that can heavily or rely upon and utilize big data sets to identify latent relationships that our human brains may not be able to identify or our biases convolute. We also can now use these technologies from big data to better understand individual characteristics and how they modify all these relationships. So clearly this initiative is beneficial. And data harmonization itself is beneficial because that's at the root of it. But, you know, the, the report itself tucks upon some barriers. And I just wanted you to have the opportunity to talk to listeners a little bit about what are the existing focal barriers 
inhibiting progression on this front from because from my perspective it's like well yeah let's do it yeah exactly i mean why are we not doing it yet right so and i think like some of the barriers that we identified like you know first one of one of the things that we talked about is really lack of training uh, I, I don't think that we learn through all science i mean we learn a lot about scientific method and we learn a lot about many different things that are extremely important but there's very little, at least until recently, about the importance of well cataloging the data that you have and what are, what are the options as a data generator that you have in order to make good use. Like in, in general, we, you know, we, we tend to store our data in an Excel spreadsheet that we save in that folder that who knows where it is, right? I mean, people do that still today. I do that still today because sometimes it's, it's not something that you know, we have the time to spend. So lack of training implies that uh, that's not something that's important. So people don't really think about it. So they don't really do it, right? So that's one particular challenge, one particular barrier. The other one uh, is the lack of incentive. And we talked a little bit about this. Uh, I think more recently, we have different models of how to make incentives. And I think, you know, if you're thinking about like the, the NIH data sharing plans, like we're gonna be starting 2023, having more discussions about uh, how we're gonna share our data if, for an NIH funded study and how we have to comply. It's not only really, you know, uh, you know saying writing a data a management plan, data sharing management plan, but also complying with it, right? So, you know, enforcing is a way to actually make things work. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure if it's the right way or the most effective way, because uh, if you don't really give any guidelines or if you if if there's like not, not like a, a systematic or even like standardized way of how we are going to do this, uh, you know, we're going to just end up in the same boat as we are at right now. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that as part of the efforts of uh, us sharing data as part of funded studies from the NIH, for example, there are also well-established processes that we can do this. So, you know, now these, what sorts of incentives, like, you know, should we, should we, you know, have part of the funds allocated, maybe, you know, indirects, uh, maybe you can use some of the indirects from NIH funds to pay for this sort of work, right? Because it's relevant, it's important, we need to do, but if it's not in the forefront, it's, it's not gonna happen, like, and that's my concern. And then I think, you know, that the final barrier relates to uh, agreeing, we talked a little about, about this, right? I mean, we maybe we're gonna see actigraphs flying around uh, until we find definitions of things that are, that are, you know, meaning the same thing or not, but this is important. That's actually a good thing. Having those discussions is actually important, but there are ways and methods to actually uh, facilitate the adoption of concepts that might be the same or might be the similar with ontologies, which is like a term that we used a lot in the field to, to, you know, create relationships between things. So maybe two concepts, they are not quite exactly the same because we couldn't have the community agree upon, but they all share something in common that we can track, right? So if, if when we start uh, using informatics methods, to start cataloging relationships between concepts that can help solve the problem. But, you know, again, we need to have the time and the money in order to, to, to actually effectively do this. Beautifully, beautifully answered. And, you know, I want to address all of those, but I think the, the one I really want to focus on first is the incentivization and, and the compensatory or the comp compensation aspect of it. 
um, because this is at the forefront of a lot of scientific issues right now, just thinking about peer review and the crisis we're kind of running into there. As scientists and academics, we don't have a ton of time. We always have a plate or two or three or four that are over full, right? And yet at the same time, there seems to be this belief in the field longstanding that, yeah, you just do it. You take it on, you shoulder the, the burden, and you you struggle, right? You know, and it can have lasting consequences on our mental health and well-being. So I do see movement, which is encouraging in this new era of science. And maybe this last couple of years has had an impact on that as we've all kind of reevaluated our lives and priorities. But we should be compensated for the extra efforts we have to do and that brought up a conversation in my brain that I remembered from a town hall meeting we had in the psychology department here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where we we're talking about the import of open science. This is probably three, four years ago. And one of the faculty members, I've, I've forgotten his name, my apologies, astutely pointed out like, hey, like I'm, I'm all for sharing my algorithms. I'm all for putting all this stuff up onto a network for other people to access. But at the same time, we live in a predatorial kind of infrastructure in academia where I need to publish or I perish. I'm fighting for academic tenure. Other people are going to profit, if you will, off of my hard work that I'm not receiving any direct benefit from. And so to me, that seems to relate here. There's that extra step. And I, I'm glad you addressed it. Do you do you see this as something that's surmountable? Yeah, I mean, that that's a very good discussion. And I think that it kind of like broads and up to not only sharing data, but s several of the other tasks that we might need to do as a, as a scientist, peer review. So I do agree like that, yes, this takes time out of our agenda, right? And then it's not really well incentivized. So what can we do about it? Well, you know, maybe we should continue to promote practices as, as good as we can. And then when we can actually make those changes, uh, we, we should support those changes to be made, right? You know, maybe having a strong like relationship with uh, people that might be able to create the rules might help with maybe if you're talking to your chair in terms of like how are your incentives are seen in terms of the promotion process right i mean can we change the status quo can we change this right so i think like you know th those sorts of conversations are probably like way way beyond the scope of like how how we how we deal with it but yes they have direct application I honestly think that, so first of all, there are ways of publishing your data and getting attribu attributions for it. And then I, I believe that this is at least a way of formalizing that, well, yeah, your code was shared appropriately, your data, uh, your data has been shared appropriately, you have like a, a DOI for when you publish your data or for when you publish your GitHub page that contains your code, for example. So these things are, are traceable. Right. And by having ways of quantifying the traceability, you know, you can see the numbers of downloads. You can see how that has been disseminated. You can come up with ways of like developing tutorials that have a high access. If you develop a method and you want to write a code explaining how, writing a blog post explaining how uh, you reach out to that conclusion. And then again, like the NSRR uh, currently have, you know, several. Uh, blog posts about studies that that we published using the that NSRR data that goes you know kind of like walks through the process of the paper and sometimes 
this is dissemination. This helps people. This this should be counted. Now, you know, I'm not the one that will change the rules, but you know, if one day I'm in a position that I can change the rules, I I probably will, will fight for it. Yes. Well, I will vote for you because uh, <laughs> I I do agree that like yes, we're often judged a lot on our teaching experiences, our numbers of first author publications or senior publications. But what about true contributions to progress science, right? That may not unfold into 10 publications that have Jesse's first name on it, but you've unlocked the potential and that should be uh, considered when considering tenure promotion, things like that. Uh, So I I will vote for you, Diego, for sure. And I think this connects in some ways when thinking about data sharing and the import of building these big data sets, pooling data data together. Um, Researchers obviously must be willing to share their data. And what if researchers don't want to share their data? Yeah, that's challenging, right? I mean, people tend to share, uh, but there are cases that they can share due to either legal reasons, sometimes due to selfishness. I mean, I'm not sure about these cases. I'm not sure what can be done much about these cases unless creating incentives, I guess, right, to to have them share. But I also wanted to discuss, like, when I I was uh, thinking about this particular question, uh, there are other models that does not necessarily require you to share your data, right? So that's very common in in the biomedical informatics field. So there's something that's called distributed research network. Right. So the word distributed comes from the fact that your analysis gets distributed across all the sites and that, you know, your analysis code gets run, you know, it gets to be run in the different sites and then you get aggregated results and then you get that uh, response back into like, let's say something similar to a meta-analysis. So this, this doesn't require you to share data. It does require one thing though. It requires that all the sites contributing to a, to a distributed research network like this, they store their data the same way. And there's a lot of effort in, in, until you get to that point. But if you build this for you know one study, that can be reutilized to other areas. So a lo- lots of the clinical research networks that exist today, including like, uh, you know, we, we have a research network, uh, it's called the Greater Plains Collaborative here in the Midwest, uh, which you have several institutions that have their clinical data, like their electronic health record data, mapped to a common standard, which is called a common data model. So that's a common data model that's supported by PCORI, uh, or it's called PCORnet. And every site has their data standardized that way, their clinical EHR data, right? So there are limitations in what's in there, but at least the bread and butter of what you get from the EHR is already there. So now we don't have to have the data centralized in one place. That's usually preferred. We can do more if, if the data is preferred. But you know, heavily regulated clinical healthcare data uh, has not. They, they, there is an opportunity for us to utilize this without having to deal with like, oh, who shared, who owns the data? What if I don't want to share? It? My hospital doesn't want to share, and so on. So there are alternatives. Just to keep that in in mind to to the listeners as well. I like that model a lot because I, I do believe that we are all working together on this forefront of science, but there are other variables to think about as we kind of alluded to with being in academia and you know wanting to progress ourselves in our careers. And sometimes it's like, hey, wait a minute. I spent all this time and effort writing this grant. I went and collected all these data 
And I've now spent a lot of time training undergrads to process it and polish it and get into right format. And all that work took many, many, many years. And now I'm supposed to just put it on a platform for others to use. I could see some negative feelings emerging when you see somebody truly relying solely on other people's data collection without contributing themselves. Is that something we may find ourselves in as we move through this kind of new age? Yeah, that, that's a very important point. And some people might feel that way. But I do think that that, to me, relates more about like the academic culture. Like I think those sorts of feelings they seem to be like ingrained with the fact that, oh, you know, like I put a lot of work into this. And so, I mean, what's really the goal of science, right? Is it to, you know, the ultimate goal is to get you promoted or is really to advance knowledge uh, that can be disseminated to the greatest amount of people that we can, right? So when we think in this perspective, my, my opinion is that we, we really need to try to treat those specific cases in a way that, we can still think about our overall goal in science, right? So, and then I, one thing that I also like to mention is that there are ways, uh, and I think, you know, in terms of like funding research to do, like, for example, should we fund research for data generators or should we fund research for uh, data parasites? And I like the term parasites because there's actually, you know, a group that create something that's called the, the Research Parasite Award. So it's actually an award that you can apply for, which the goal is to write a paper, an analysis resulting as a paper, as a secondary analysis of a data set that's publicly available. So those awards are generally given at conference, the Pacific Science Biosymposium in Hawaii every year. And it's actually interesting, right? So it facilitates how we end up like using, reutilizing those resources. So, you know, isn't there space for both, like maybe funding well-designed data generation studies, but also secondary analysis that it, it will be generally cheaper, will contribute to training of, of, of people in certain areas. I think there's space for everybody. That's that's my point. I agree. And I remain optimistic there. I just know that there's definitely a percentage of uh, researchers, scientists, academics who will kind of remain in that this is my data. I've worked hard for it. And I just cannot give it up because other people will progress without me. I also must say, that's the first time I've ever heard Parasite be used that positively. So that was cool. Um, <laughs> you did bring up the word reusing there, uh, secondary analyses. And we talked about this, or I guess in my training, we talked about this in some of my courses that there can be potentially some issues with kind of overusing data. Um, from your perspective, do you see any problems there at all? Well, there is a risk of what people call the salami science, right? Uh, and I think the salami science is when you have one data set with, you know, several variables, and then you do, you know, 10 papers about kind of the same topic, just changing one variable. This is not necessarily good practice. I don't think that should be incentivized in any way. And that's a risk when we have those data sets out there. Now, uh, I think that there's another kind of like more complex layer in, in, in this incentives and, and, and coming from, you know, a country like Brazil, the incentives are very different. So sometimes there's a lot of like incentives in terms of quantity over quality, and that helps, you know, if like you need to have 
several masters and PhD students graduated a year, and then you have to each one of them have one first author publication. It doesn't matter. It's it could be like you know in a journal like that doesn't have impact factor. So you're gonna end up getting to situations where it's just easier to do this, right? So I think uh, this can be solved again by training and and try to change some of the incentive models of. Uh, but you know that, that that's a problem that's much harder to to solve than I'm, I'm relaying here, right? I mean, we're not going to change the scientific culture of, of of different you know countries that see this see quantity as a benefit of over quality. But as part of the training process of like understanding reusability of data, I think being aware of those pre predatory practices of uh, you know salami sciencey, I guess we can um, we we can probably help with this issue. Well said. And I want to be mindful of your time here, Diego, but if you have some time, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about kind of how we can actually establish and in some ways ensure kind of data standard guidelines. And, um, you know, I, I just wonder how we can really find, you know, drill down to specifics, the actual data standard guidelines that can be universally implemented, despite notable differences in, in access to methodological tools, whether that be high density EEG versus six channels, things like that. How can we really uh, improve there, even though we have such different access? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that uh, technical standards, they actually have been, it's not too bad in certain areas. Like if you're thinking about like EEG or sleep recordings, there are standards that technical standards that exist and well utilized, like European data format files, EDFs, right? Those are pretty well designed standards that we use into today, right? So there, there's more that can be done. And I think that what we've done in that workshop really helped uh, us to understand what the, some of the next steps would be. I think uh, involving people that are experts in both the physiological aspect in like the data collection aspect, the scientists, but also those that are, you know, experts in ontology development, those that are experts in how to act, act, act sorry, accurately representing data into a, a specific format that a computer can read, that it's easy to transfer around, it's hard to make changes, uh, in, but it's also flexible at the same time that allows you know, new data elements that have been discovered. So expect uh, that new things will show up, will, will exist. So then it has to be prepared to, to in, you know, input this new comment, this new concepts, for example. So there's, there's a lot that can be done. I think there's a lot of standard uh, institutions, uh, mostly on the clinical field. Like you, you may have heard of health level seven or HL seven, which usually helps with communicating clinical systems. Uh, so, you know, like your sleep lab with your EHR, uh, they transfer messages for HL7. So those are standards, data standards that have been utilized clinically, but we are not really leveraging a lot of that for research. Uh, another common one is like FHIR, uh, F-H-I-R, which is an interoperability resource that, you know, helps with kind of like navigating this data landscape. So uh, there are things out there we, I think we just need to put people kind of like have, have people uh, within both domains speaking in the room. And that's what's really the goal of the workshop. And we are now trying to advance the move forward because we are having those conversations more seamlessly now. Beautiful. And 
I believe you already touched upon my kind of final deeper into the dive question here, which relates to the fact that it is kind of a blessing, but also a burden that we don't always agree in science. Um, So I don't think we're going to resolve that by further discussion today, Uh, but I'm happy that there are efforts to, again, instead of finding true consensus, find enough consensus, right? We don't have to agree on how to say epic versus epoch, but we have to agree that these are 30 seconds or six seconds, whatever it may be, right? So I appreciate that that's kind of where you're coming from there, that we can still have our differences. So instead, I'm going to ask you this, Diego, to kind of close down the manuscript discussion. There's a lot of goodness in this report, but the path forward to me still still seems a bit opaque. Um, Where do we go from here? What are the kind of proximal and distal actions and and who is responsible for pushing these initiatives forward? And I'm just going to implicate you. But uh, yeah, where do we go from here? Yeah, I think this is a lot of the work that the Sleep Research Network is doing right now, right? So we uh, have been having different types of conversations uh, among our members. And also we started having conversations with uh, different health systems that have like mature uh, like informatics processes that are well established because they are part of those large networks that I mentioned, right? So I think it's it's time for each individual institution to get their lead sleep researcher, talk to their lead research informatics officer or re- informatics researcher, and put them in the same room like we did in the workshop report, and then see, look, why the sleep data that matters to me, like in the context of new research studies, in the context, even like the simple example of, you know, I want to do a clinical trial, a multi-site clinical trial in 10 sites. And I want to see how many people actually meet the specific criteria that requires a sleep study. So, well, we have like, you know, you know, tens of thousands of people doing sleep studies over the years. Uh, but also, you know, how we do this, like, it's not that information that comes out of the sleep study is like available in a specific field that's easy to query, that's easy to search. That doesn't happen today. Like it happens in a handful of institutions, but that's it, right? So how, how can we enable the data, the sleep data that matters to us, both for observational research, but also for facilitating clinical trials? How can we have this data ready for prime time, ready for using, ready for querying and identifying. Well, you know, I have, you know, you know, a study where we're looking for moderate severe sleep apnea, but I want to do based on the hypoxic burden versus the apnea hypopnea index. I mean, the, the, how how do I generate hypoxic burden for every single patient coming to the clinic, right? I mean, it's not that I'm going to implement a tool that's out there, uh, you know, I mean, every single one. But what if like this was already part of the process? So that would then facilitate, and that's that's the goal. That's where we want to get. So the Zip Research Network is starting to have these conversations. We are sending out uh, over the next, uh, you know, months, a few months, uh, surveys to different institutions that have mature informatics, that are part of mature informatics networks to understand how they collect and store their sleep data and what can be done to fill those gaps. That's our next immediate step as part of the SRM. Outstanding. Well, I'm already going to begin the campaign for you to be anointed president, leader, king, whatever it may be of this movement. Um, So thank you, Diego, for all you've done previously and all you're going to do in the future. 
To close down today's episode, of course, I want to thank Dr. Diego Mazachi for finding the time to discuss this workshop report. Um, Diego, uh, I'll plug uh, all of your contacts in our show notes here for the listeners to burden you in life. But I do have a final question before I let you go back to your other responsibilities. Uh, if you were afforded unlimited funding to explore a singular sleep and or circadian research topic, or it could just be related to bioinformatics, what would you investigate? Yeah, that, that's an important question. And I think that one, one thing, that, a big gap that I see, especially uh, after I moved to the United States, I think there is a disconnect. What about people in general consider like healthy behaviors and healthy lifestyles? and how that impacts their outcomes. And then the way that our health system is, was built, it wasn't necessarily to address this problem. Like, you know, you go, there's a lot of this sense of like, you go to hospital because you're sick, right? And there's not a lot about prevention. There's not a lot about like, you know, understanding your daily life information. So, you know, I, I will probably try to, you know, design like a super awesome study that would, uh, look at the impact of every our daily lives, and that would particularly include sleep, uh, because I think you know we spend thirty percent of our life sleeping, right? So I I do think that you know it must be important. I I believe so. How how we can learn about this and how this can impact the way that uh, our health trajectories occur over life and how that has impact on outcomes so then we can early prevent, right? So, I mean, that's obviously very broad, but I, I do think that changing a little bit of this culture about what does being sick mean or what knowing about your health means, I think that that's an important team in science that, that needs to be pursued. And maybe informatics can help, and that's what I'm trying to bank on. Outstanding. Well, the future is certainly bright, and I guarantee you will be carrying that light forward on this front. So thank you again, Diego, for taking time to sitting down with me and serving as a guest for this SRS podcast. I know I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. I hope the listeners did as well. And all I ask is that you just have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Jesse. It was a great pleasure to be here today. I definitely enjoyed the conversation and I'm looking forward to continue exploring this field. I also would like to congratulate the, the podcast. I think it was a great experience. I really enjoy listening to all the episodes. Uh, so keep going with the good work. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words, Diego. Take care. Thank you. You too. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content, or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burrows and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, 
I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.